So 1 Kings chapter 12 and chapter 13. I grew up in, a, in an a cappella hymn singing church. And Joe, why don't you hit the light back there so we can see a little bit better? Thank you. And, uh, yeah. The waves are nice, but they're lulling us all into a sense of, you know. Just wait for this. There we go. Okay. <laughs> I grew up in an a cappella hymn singing church. That's what I was used to growing up my whole life, all the way through high school, even through college. I sang all the old hymns. Uh, and we made fun of most of the old hymns, which I won't go into that right now. Okay, I will. Um, I think I've shared with you before, you, you can do so much with them if you, if you just have just enough rebellion you know, in your heart as you're singing, Are You Sowing the Seeds of the King, Dumb Brother? Or, uh, or There's a Gland Beyond My Liver. That was a favorite of mine. <laughs> but in these hymns, there's a, there's a, a wonderful amount of teaching that, that comes along with them. At the conference we were at last week, we uh, the worship leaders were Keith and, and Kristen Getty, and they write modern hymns. In fact, they're the ones who wrote uh, In Christ Alone, which is the song that we sing here from time to time. And every song they did were modern hymns. Every song was a hymn, which was okay. I think we need a little more her in the worship as well. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't pass that one up. But after a while, it did get, it got a little old. I, I, I felt myself wanting to be back here, you know, and, and singing and worshiping with you all. Um, but the thing about the hymns is they always taught great messages. One of my favorites was Trust and Obey. I don't know if you ever heard Trust and Obey or sang that one growing up, but for me, it, it really captured my heart. As a real young kid, as, as before I even really gave my life to the Lord, the first verse of Trust and Obey says, When we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. And I just, I love that song. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, as a small child, that spoke to my heart. It gave me a sense of security and boundaries. I kind of knew where I was at with the Lord, even as a little kid. And you know, good parenting does that. Good parenting establishes boundaries. That's what discipline is about. That's what the rules are there for. To establish boundaries for the children because kids feel safer when they know where the fence is. When they know where the boundaries are. When there are no boundaries and it's just a free-for-all, kids feel out of control and unsafe. And that's a very natural human thing. And so I felt that way growing up, going to church, singing Trust and Obey. But as I got more into my teen years and that monster rebellion began to rear its ugly head in my life, that's when making fun of the hymn started. And that's when the whole idea of trust and obey, I still like the trust part because I wanted to see Jesus as a trusted friend, but the obey part... Man, it just sounded a little bit too parental. You know? Obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. And I would hear the keep my commandments part and go, well, that's a little pushy. <laughs> you know? I mean, to be honest, you don't just love me because of who I am. i got to keep commandments now. i got to do things for you, Lord. And the older I got, the more I found myself following the words of those great American hymn writers, Fleetwood Mac, who said... <laughs> You can go your own way. 
And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do things my way. I love God, but man, I wanted to do it my way. And I wanted to test out, like so many people do, I want to test out what you say. You say go this way, I'm going that way just to see what it's like. Just because you told me don't go that way. Okay, well I'm going to go that way. You know, don't, don't touch the hot stove. I mean, that's the first thing we do. It's the rebellious heart that's within all of us. Here's the thing. It was King Solomon who wrote, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A way that seems right to, looks good to me. What's wrong with this path here, Lord? I know you're saying go that way, but this way looks good to me. And the Lord says, well, it might look good. It might seem right. But it's going to lead to death. I want to talk about obedience this morning. Maybe not the most popular thing in churches to talk about today. Obedience, commandments, following the structure and the the precepts and the teachings and the commands laid out by the Lord. But we're going to see something this morning played out in the lives of two very different men. We're going to see what obedience does. First man is Jeroboam, who we're going to see is an amazingly disobedient man, incredibly disobedient. Outright rebellious, he sets up idols, we'll see in just a moment. And nothing really seems to happen to him, at least not immediately. Then we're going to be introduced to a man of God. And this man of God, man, he follows the directions of the Lord. Mostly. He makes one tiny little error. And he ends up roadkill on the highway. So let's get into this first. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you will give us insight and understanding and perspective. The Lord truly is a godly perspective because we get all caught up in our human way of thinking. Father, you said your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. And so we ask that you will open our minds and our hearts to your ways this morning. Help us to see things the way you do. And understand a little bit more about this whole concept of obedience and what you're truly calling us to. We pray in Jesus' name, asking for your spirit to teach us today. Amen. First Kings chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and he built, he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom of David will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted. And he made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put up in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places, and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi, which was the priestly tribe. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. He went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even on the month in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. The year is 931 B.C. 
If you were here on Wednesday night, I think I said it was around 9.20. Well, I went back and looked. It's 9.31. Solomon is dead. And the glory days of Israel as a unified kingdom are fast approaching past tense. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he's on the throne. But the people rebel against him because Rehoboam says, You think life was hard under Solomon? It's going to be doubly hard under me. He used whips, whips to discipline you? I'm going to use scorpions. i got more power in my little finger than my father has in his loins, Rehoboam said to the people. So the ten northern tribes of Israel said, Whatever, dude, we're out of here. That's my paraphrase. And they went home. And Jeroboam rises up to lead what is now the kingdom of Israel in the north. Rehoboam still is now king over Judah and Benjamin in the south. And we have a divided kingdom from this point forward. Both of these men, Solomon's son Rehoboam and the young man Jeroboam, both of them will do evil in the sight of the Lord. Both will set the stage for ongoing evil among all the kings of both Judah and Israel for the rest of their days. Straight down the line. I believe I shared early on in this study of 1 Kings that in Judah, 13 out of 20 kings will fail. 13 of 20 kings will reject the Lord and chase after idols, which means 7 out of the entire 20 do a decent job. On Israel's side, in the north, every single one of the 19 kings down the line will fall to idol worship and reject the Lord God. Every one of them. This is not a good track record for the people. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 2, David is talking to Solomon, and he says these words to him. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in His ways. Now I've said that is the key phrase of the entire book of 1 and 2 Kings. Walk in His ways. It's what God called the kings to. Walk in my ways. Remember, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. He says, walk in my ways, walk in his ways, David speaking, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. And so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way, to walk before me in truth, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But the majority of these kings will not walk in his way. They will not stand with truth. They will follow after error and idols. And both thrones, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, will fall. Both groups of people will be taken into captivity. Both will be wiped, almost wiped out. Israel will be wiped out never to rise again. Judah will be wiped out, taken into Babylon. And 70 years later, a remnant will come back, a smattering of Jewish people... And it will be a vassal kingdom for the rest of their time all the way till Rome destroys everything in AD 70. Because they wouldn't walk in the way. Jeroboam, Jeroboam back in 1 Kings 12 was especially evil. Because as we see, he develops religious reforms that strike at the very heart of Israel. Many of you know several weeks back I had a little heart trouble that landed me in the hospital. It was that, that Sunday night, and I had preached that morning, and I probably shouldn't have, but I wanted to. And uh, that night, my chest started hurting like it had never hurt before in my life. I mean, it, was, it felt like a weight was on it, and I had, I had pain shooting up my neck and then down my left arm, and I wasn't making this stuff up. I mean, I was just going, I'm just having a heart attack. This is not good. I'm a health. I'm 43 years old. You know, a 43-year-old man shouldn't be having pains in his chest. 
And so I told Cheryl, you better take me to the hospital. And she drives me to the hospital, and we get there. And they, they uh, if you want, by the way, for them to move quickly, Mark knows this, if you want them to move quickly in a waiting room of an emergency room, just say, I got chest pain. Boom. And they are on it. They move fast. I was on a table laid out. They have tubes going in me, and the guy was checking and everything. Before I even knew what was going on, I was in an ambulance heading over to Skagit Hospital. That was nice, by the way, when, when the doctor says, uh, listen, we're going to transport you over to Skagit because we really don't, uh, we can't take care of this here. Great. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Doc. I'd like a baby aspirin, and I can just go home. I mean, come on. Are you serious? So I went over there. They pulled me out of the ambulance, immediately took me right in to have an arterial catheter, which is, they, they stick it in kind of, well, I won't tell you, tell you exactly, but they, they go in kind of groin area, ow, and then they shoot this wire all the way up into your heart. I'm lying there on the table, I can see the monitor, and there's my heart. So I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. And they went in and out, and the valves are great, and the arteries are fantastic. No plaques, thank you. But they said, yeah, your heart is enlarged. Something's going on here. There's a problem. And as we went through and found out, it was myochondritis. Is that right? Myocarditis. Thank you. Myocarditis, which simply means an inflamed heart. You know, they love these big words. And by the way, don't ever talk to Mark more than about 10 minutes because he's going to start throwing out words and you have no idea what he's saying. And if you do talk to him more than 10 minutes, because he's, he's an ER doc, he knows all this lingo, um, just nod and smile. He's <laughs> picking on you, man. Myocarditis. What happened? I had the flu. I had a simple little flu, nose cold, kind of a chest cold, coughing a little bit, had a real low-grade fever, no big deal. But the virus I had decided to take a left turn and attack my heart. It's very rare. I mean, it doesn't happen that often, but it happened to me. Myocarditis. Jeroboam is myocarditis in Israel. He attacks the heart of the people. What is the heart of the people? Their relationship with God. I'll tell you what, it would have been bad if Jeroboam, like David, had committed adultery and had an affair. Probably did. We don't have any record of it, though. It would have been bad if he had introduced, I don't know, drug abuse into the culture or if he had done other foolish things. But the worst possible thing that he could do was say, look, we got to replace their faith in God because their faith in God is going to take them away from me as their ruler. They're all going to want to go back to Jerusalem. So we've got to change some things here. And he developed a religion that attacked the heart of Israel. Here's how he did it. It was a religion based on strategic consultation. Look at verse 28. The king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Strategic consultation. He consulted. He got some friends together. Some smart guys. And he said... How can we turn the heart of this people? How can we keep them right here? What do we do? He was strategic in his thinking. He did his homework. He researched the best ways to attract the hearts of people. Second thing he did was he offered up some symbolic change. He said, check out these two golden calves that brought you up out of Egypt. Now, any thinking Israelite, any studied Israelite will know that was an absolute lie. The only thing the golden calf did was get them in massive trouble at Mount Horeb. 
the golden calf didn't bring him up out of Egypt but here Jeroboam is saying this and I think to myself in, in the symbolic change check out the calves we're going to worship them instead of God I'm thinking why didn't someone catch this why wasn't there one Israelite among all of them who could remember back 400 years it had been a little over 400 years why didn't one of them study the history and say, uh, uh, oh, excuse me, sorry, but the, the calf idea is a bad idea. Unless you want to drink gold. I mean, it's just not a good thing. No one says a word. They buy into it. Why is that? Because it's always easy to change the rules when no one's reading them. It's always easy to change the meaning or the message of the word when no one is in it. You have heard me. Man, I I know. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse. But if we are not in the word, how can you know what the rules are? How can you know what God expects or what He desires or what pleases Him if you're not in the Word? And far too many Christians today are not in the Word. 400 years is not a long time, gang. But it's a couple hundred years longer than the beginning of our country. And our country already doesn't remember its founding fathers. Our country already recognizes or doesn't recognize that we were based on Christian principles. The Ten Commandments were foundational in the writing of these American documents. And we've forgotten It doesn't take long if you're not paying attention. No one knew the stories. No one was in the Word. And so Jeroboam creates this religion based on strategic consultation. He knew what he was doing. And symbolic change. He used these symbols of the golden calves. By the way, the golden calves may have appealed to something a bit more modern and familiar to the people had they ever gone to Solomon's temple to worship. They would have seen something that personally I don't think was supposed to be in there. 1 Kings chapter 7 verse 25 tells us that that great swimming pool sized bronze laver called the bronze sea that the priests would wash in, it tells us that it stood on 12 oxen. Three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them and the Bible adds, and I appreciate this, and all their rear parts turned inward. Okay? <laughs> Why were there idols, oxen, in the temple? What's that all about? I seem to recall in Exodus chapter 20 verse 4, the Lord in the Ten Commandments said, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. Don't even make fish idols. And yet Solomon says, but we've got to have something to hold up the sea, 12 oxen. So for the modern day Israelite who doesn't know the history, who's not thinking about coming out of Egypt, they see the bronze sea and they see the oxen, and then Jeroboam comes along and says, hey, we'll just we'll put some golden calves up. It'll kind of remind you of the temple, get you closer to God. In Christianity today, and I was reminded of this this morning, in the emergent church, one of the emergent church attitudes, one of the things that's going on is the bringing back in symbols, mostly Catholic symbols, to help in worship. Anything that will help me in worship. At the conference we were just at, Alistair Begg was asked a question. Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. Alistair was asked a question. We were in the church, but it's a lovely church. There's a lot of room, you know, classrooms, and then there's, it's, it's nice to be in. Not a single sign or symbol. There's not a cross on the wall any, anywhere. And someone said, Alistair, why, is there, why are there no signs? And, and his response was, we don't want anything to get in between a person's worship to the Lord. Not even a cross, not even a cross. Because we begin to take those symbols and elevate the symbol. We begin to look to the symbol to save us. We begin to get up in the morning and go, do I have my cross on? (laughs) Because if I don't, today might not go so well. As if it is an amulet or something 
And it's exactly what Jeroboam did. He created this religion of symbolic change. Number three, it was a religion based on simple convenience. I don't know if this is starting to sound familiar to something that we see in America today. A religion of simple convenience. He set up one of the golden idols in Bethel, which is down in the south, and one up in Dan, up in the north. You can see Tel Dan. In fact, you can see the actual site on which the high place, on which the golden calf stood. It's there in an archaeological find, and it's fascinating to see that. And it's in Israel today. One up in the north of the northern kingdom and one down in the south of the northern kingdom. And in addition, the Bible says, he made houses, verse 31, on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. So if going all the way up to Tel Dan or going all the way down to Bethel was difficult for you, you might just go to the high place. We want this to be as easy as possible. It shouldn't be hard. People should be able to come in and out and have, have their, their worship and then head on home. And, and you know, if that's too hard, we should put it on TV so that they can just worship the golden idol on... You know, they didn't have TV, but that's what he was doing. Make it simple, convenient, and easy. And we like convenience. I've sat in church meetings at previous churches where we talked about how to make it more convenient for people. How to make it a little easier for people. We could cut the teachings down to 20 minutes... Max, because after all, after 20 minutes you'll lose people. Their minds go out somewhere else. We can provide simple three-point outlines on PowerPoint so the answers come up. So they're not getting an answer on their own. They're getting a, you know, exactly what we tell them. It's perfect for our ADD society. We can do a few less songs of worship. And the songs we do, let's make sure they're peppy and happy. You know, two or three real upbeat, yeah, woo! You know, 20-minute sermon, get them out of here. We could do communion maybe once a year because that really takes some time. You know, or as someone suggested first hour, we can just have drive-through. We'll just open up the doors of the barn, drive on in, we'll hand you your communion, a sermon tape, sing a song, and off you go. I mean, it would be so convenient. We could carve out those especially long, dull times of prayer. You know, when the guy gets up here and just blah, 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 when's he going to stop? I can talk to God on my own time. I don't, but I could. You know? Why do I have to put up with all this? It's so inconvenient. We could program this whole thing to be done in less than an hour with less conviction to ruin our Sunday lunch. We laugh, but it's happening in the church all the time. Let's make it easy. Religion based on simple convenience, and finally it was a religion of surrogate ceremony. What does that mean? A replacement ceremony. It's interesting to me that what Jeroboam did, it tells you in verse 32, he instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month. On the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, was in Israel God's proclaimed feast, the Day of Atonement. Jeroboam came came along after that and said, let's put ours one month later. Same day, let's just move it a month later and have our own time of sacrifice our own thing a separate ceremony that will keep the people's hearts here instead of doing it the way the Lord said to do it strategic consultation symbolic change simple convenience and surrogate ceremony and they all led to one thing a sad sorry counterfeit it wasn't what God wanted at all Now I tell you all this just to say keep a weather eye there is a new reformation afoot striking at the heart of Christianity like a virus undermining the truth of Jesus for the sake of human consultation 
and change and convenience and ceremony, but it's counterfeit at best. And at worst, it's outright rebellion. By the way, it's interesting. Do you know how banks, banks train their tellers to catch counterfeit money that comes through? They don't hand them counterfeits. They hand them the real thing. Look at the dollar bill. Study the five. Study the ten. The fifteen. The hundred. You make sure the fifty, not the fifteen, because we don't have a fifty. <laughs> study it. Know it. And when you know the real one, and a counterfeit comes across your way, you spot it like that. Which is a, a good lesson for us. Don't study the counterfeit. You study the truth, and you'll see the counterfeit for what it is. This is why in Paul's last letter written to Timothy, he said in 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time is going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Three words that Paul gave to Timothy. Three words that were the essence of his entire ministry. Preach the word. Why such an emphasis on the word, the word, the word, Paul? Because without the Word, we don't have the foundation of truth. Without the Word, we're not going to know the counterfeit when it comes. And gang, it comes. And it's all around. Now, I could, I could stop here. After all, we've covered more than four point, three points. But uh, our story isn't about just the walk of a king. Jeroboam, for all his disobedience, would continue to rule, at least for a while, over the kingdom of Israel. But there's another character I want you to look closely at this morning. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Pretty cool moment here. In fact, 350 years later, the 18th king in the line of Judah, a man by the name of Josiah, will do exactly what this prophet proclaimed was going to happen. You can read about it in 2 Kings 23. But Josiah will be the first and only king to wipe out paganism in Israel, at least during his reign. The land gets wiped clean of all the high places, which is a great big hallelujah, especially when you're setting through 1 and 2 Kings. It was a long time coming. But who is this man of God? Chapter 13 starts out with this man of God from Judah who came to Bethel by the word of the Lord. Who is this guy? We don't know. He's one of those kind of people in the Bible who remains unnamed. We don't find out about him. We don't hear anything else about him. But this story, who is the man of God? We know that he's one of few people in the Bible who bears this title. And that's significant because today we tend to throw around the phrase man of God pretty loosely, pretty easily. Oh, he's a man of God. Oh, I'd love to be a man of God. Oh, he's a godly man. This is a rare title used in Scripture. And so for him to be called a man of God is significant. And we see already right out front that this man of God was a powerful prophet. He was a powerful prophet. He's courageous. He's unyielding. He gets right up in the face of Jeroboam. I love this guy. 
And he comes out of nowhere from Judah and goes into the territory of Israel under the reign of King Jeroboam who is offering sacrifices on his own special day. Goes right up to the high place, to the altar, and he starts speaking to the altar. Wow. That's tough. He's a powerful prophet. Verse 3, watch what happens. Then he gave the sign that same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the the, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand which he stretched out against him dried up. Yes, he needed some Arbonne moisturizer merely to provide some of that. <laughs> so that he could not draw it back to himself. What does it mean it dried up? It means he had immediate paralysis. His hand withered and he couldn't even draw it back in. That's awesome. This man of God is not only a powerful prophet, but he is a protected prophet. Seize him! Uh-oh! I mean, how many of the army would then jump right up to do their task watching that take place? The king's hand withering before their very eyes. Don't mess with this guy or you'll be dealt a bad hand. Verse 5. The altar also was split apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Now check this out. The prophecy, he says this altar is going to burn the bones of the pagans and 350 years later it happens but he also said here's an immediate sign for you that this will happen in 350 years the altar itself is going to split out and the ashes will fall off and it happened instantaneously which is pretty cool and so it says in verse 6 the king said to the man of God please entreat the Lord your God notice that he doesn't say the Lord our God because God is not the God of Jeroboam anymore Entreat the Lord your God and pray for me so that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before. Now let me just ask you, what would you do in this situation if you were that man of God or woman of God and you're standing there and you've just prophesied and you've watched the hand shrivel up and the king says to you, oh, please pray to your God for me. You know what I'd say? You pray to him. Makes you so tough. Mr. King, oh, of Northern Kingdom of Israel. You know? You talk to him. I think that withered hand would do you some good. I'm walking away from this one. You deal with him yourself. I mean, that, that. But this man of God, not only is he a powerful prophet, a protected prophet, he is also a prayerful prophet. And he immediately prays for Jeroboam. He shows compassion even on behalf of this evil guy. And i got to ask this question. Do you pray for the other side's political candidate? <laughs> Have you this time around? See, we got McCain, we got Obama, we got Hillary, and we got a mess. <laughs> I mean, it's the kind of thing, I, I don't know where you're at with this whole thing, but I look at all three and go... <laughs> And I've been praying. But I haven't been praying for the three of them. I've been praying, Lord, save us. Protect the nation. Do something here. What you know? I'm not meaning to espouse anything politically here. But how many of you have said, Lord, this is a long, hard campaign. And I just pray that you will help Hillary. Not necessarily win. <laughs> Would you just be with her? Give her some rest? Lord Obama, 
needs your direction and your leading, just like I do. Would you bless him with that? Father McCain needs to see your will. Would you help him? How many of us have prayed that prayer? And yet the man of God does. He prays for the opposite political party in Jeroboam. Verse 7 going on. Then then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you. Nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. That's interesting. Half your house. I'd ask for the whole thing myself. No, even give me half away. Anyway. If you give me half your house, I wouldn't go with you. Nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. Why not? Verse 9. For it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went home another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. He's a powerful prophet. He's a prayerful prophet. He's a purposeful prophet now. A purposeful prophet. He has great integrity. He is charged for a specific task and then he sticks to it. You go and you preach against the altar and you do what I tell you to do but when you're done, get out of there. No drinking, no eating. Don't even take the same road you came in by. You go out by a different road. No wonder he's called a man of God because he has the integrity to stand up. But this is where the story gets intriguing. Verse 11. Now an old prophet was living in Bethel. By the way, Bethel means house of God. But at this point in history, it was Sin City. This is Vegas of Israel. Not only is the idol, the golden calf, planted there in Bethel, and that's the primary place of Jeroboam's focus for pagan idolatry, but it was a sick city by this time. And this old prophet's living there, and he ain't done a thing about it. His sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken to the king, these also they related to their father. Well, their father said to him, which way did he go? And his sons had seen the way which, he had, which the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And so he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode away on it. He went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? I like his answer. I am. (laughs) And he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. He said, Well, I, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, You shall not, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. And he said to him, the old prophet now says to the man of God, Well, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. Verse 19. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. The old coot tricked the young man of God. He lied to him. Why would he do that? Well, he may have been offering a professional courtesy. You're a prophet. I'm a prophet. We hang together. You know, come on over to my place and let's let's eat. Let's have a meal. He may have wanted the prestige of having the man of God in his house. You know, if people see him coming into my house, they're going to think, oh, the old prophet's got it going on. You know, he's got this powerful man. It may be that it's been a while since the old prophet has prophesied anything. And he's just hoping that some of the power of the man of God will rub off on him and he'll get to prophesy once again. And that's exactly what happens. But before we get there, notice what he said. 
in verse 18. I also am a prophet like you, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Be careful. Even if someone says an angel told me this. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, it doesn't matter if it's us or an angel from heaven. If someone teaches you a gospel other than the one that you have received, let him be accursed. Thank you, Joseph Smith. It doesn't matter where this comes from if it doesn't come from the Lord. And you can't compare it directly to Scripture itself. You don't receive it. But an angel told me, come on, let's eat. And so he went back with him and he ate bread in his house. Verse 19. And he drank water. Verse 20. Now it came about as they were sitting down at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the young man of God who came from Judah saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. In other words, dude, you're dead meat. Your history, your toast, you're not even going to make it home. They're not even going to be able to bury you in your family tomb. You're not making it out of here alive. Hello, Pot, this is Kettle, you're black. (laughs) It's amazing, the old prophet is now speaking truth to the young prophet against what the old prophet said in the first place, which was a pack of lies. And by the way, if you want to shut down a dinner party, here's how you do it. Middle of dinner, stand up, point at someone and say, By the word of the Lord, you're not going to make it home alive tonight. (laughs) Can I refill your tea? (laughs) It's interesting because it goes on and it does say that uh, they finish up meal. Verse 23, after he had eaten the bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled a donkey for him, for the prophet whom he had brought back. That must have been mighty quiet at that point. Now, when he had gone, a lion, verse 24, met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it and the lion also was standing beside the body. This is weird, gang. The lion didn't eat him. The lion killed him and stood there. The lion didn't attack the donkey. The donkey's standing there too. Should I run? Should I sit? I'm a little confused. And the lion's just sitting there. Lion, donkey, dead prophet on the road. And behold, verse 25, men passed by and saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it to the city where the old prophet lived. And when the old prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it's the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. (laughs) You You ever had that happen? You ever have a disobedient brother or sister in Christ point a finger at you? How rude. You know, where do they get off and their sin pointing at me? Where do I get off in my sin pointing at somebody else? But he says, This guy disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him. Now this guy's twisting out the truth because the Lord didn't speak back to him. God never told him there'd be a lion. He just said, Don't go that way. But he never said anything about a lion tearing him up and eating him up. So the old codger now is kind of putting this all together and, and, and he's messing it up in his own mind. But verse 27 says, He spoke to his son saying, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown on the road which the donkey with the lion and the donkey standing beside the body. They're still there. The donkey's still going. 
I'm just going to stay put for a moment here. Because if I run, you know, Simba's coming after me. I don't know. So the old prophet, verse 29, he took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. Then he came to the city of the old prophet to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother! Man, see, stories like that just wouldn't happen today. Really? You mean hypocrisy? Okay, read on. Alas, my brother, verse 31, after he had buried him, he spoke to his son, saying, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. What? Why? Verse 32, For the things shall surely come to pass, which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. What's going on? There, there are different things you could, you could a- a- answer this with. I mean, you could say it was that he generally felt regret over the man of God and he wanted to treat his bones right. But I think it's much more likely that he knew the prophecy was going to come true and he wanted his own bones to be protected. What are you talking about? 350 years later, over in 2 Kings chapter 23, let me read this to you. 2 Kings chapter 23, in verse 15, Josiah is on the throne. King Josiah, the king about whom the young prophet spoke, is now on the throne. And verse 15 of 2 Kings 23 says, Furthermore, the altar that was in Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam the son of the bat who made Israel sin had made even that altar and the high place he that is Josiah he broke down and he demolished its stones ground them to dust and burned the Asherah now when Josiah turned he saw the graves that were there on the mountain and he sent and took the bones from the graves and burned them on the altar to defile it according to the word of the Lord which the man of God proclaimed who proclaimed these things And then he said, What is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It's the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Oh, let him alone. Let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. So the old prophet was wily. He protected his own bones by having them buried with the bones of the man of God. Yeah, but who cares? They're just bones. Hey, a Jewish person would care. Because in Jewish faith, there is an absolute belief, with the exception of one little sect called the Sadducees, there is absolute uh, belief in absolute full bodily resurrection. That's why Abraham bought the cave in Machpelah and had himself and his wife and his son and his wife buried there. That cave in Hebron. The King Herod later came along, about a thousand years or so later, no, more than that, two thousand years later, and built up this big, huge shrine around the cave of Machpelah, and it's in Hebron today. It was part of the little cab ride that Cheryl and I had down there when we were in Israel. <laughs> and that's a whole story unto itself. I think I shared a little bit about that. But there in Hebron is the cave of Machpelah, Abraham's bones. Why? Because when Abraham was resurrected, or will be resurrected, He wants to be able to walk out of the cave and be in Hebron, in the promised land that God promised to give him. Because Abraham, when he died, fully believed that he would be resurrected again, and he will. It's why on the Mount of Olives today there are thousands of Jewish tombs. Thousands of Jewish graves, and those graves, I think some of you know this, have been sold or sell for about a million dollars each. 
Why? Because the book of Zechariah in the Hebrew scripture says Messiah is going to set foot on the Mount of Olives. And a Jew believing in full bodily resurrection, physically speaking, wants to pop out of the grave and be right there with Messiah when it happens, instead of somewhere else in Israel and have to make their way to Jerusalem. And so this, this old prophet believed in a bodily resurrection and wanted his bones protected, sticks them into the same place when he dies as the man of God, and that's exactly what happens. It's an incredible story, and it's true. Now, I don't know about you, but this one left me a little unsettled. Because I look at Jeroboam and I think, that guy deserves to be fried. I look at the man of God and think, he did what he was sent to do. He followed through with his mission. God said, go do this. He did it. He did it wonderfully. He did it with integrity. He did it with power. He was even compassionate. This is an impressive man of God. One little error he gets lied to, and that makes it even worse, by the way. He's deceived. It wasn't even his fault. They lied to him. And he ends up dead on the road. How can this work out in our minds? Game, we can sum this whole story up with one simple word. Obedience. He was obedient, but he was not fully obedient to the word of the Lord. The Lord had been absolutely crystal clear. Is there any mistaking what the Lord said? Don't eat there. Don't drink there. Not even bread or water. And do not take the highway that you came by. Go a different way home. He was totally clear about that. And it teaches us, gang, a couple of things about obedience. Number one, obedience is not an event. Obedience is a journey. Obedience is not what happened when I gave my life to Jesus. Obedience is not going through confirmation. Man, I did that, you know. Obedience is not these religious moments that we have in our lives. I got baptized in the pond. I was obedient, so what now? You keep walking. Obedience is a journey, not a moment. Now, a lot of us are doing pretty well with the Lord, working hard, serving effectively, loving dynamically. But listen, the danger often comes when we feel like the task has been completed. We've done what God told us to do. And that's when our guard comes down. And that's when the lion attacks. The lion? Yeah. The lion. It's interesting to me that there's a lion on the highway just waiting. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here's the truth, and Peter knows this. See, Peter was just hanging out with friends on a holiday weekend in Jerusalem for the Passover when the lion came out of nowhere. He wasn't looking to deny Jesus. He didn't think it was going to happen then. They were having a great week. The crowds were following Jesus. Everything looked good. The task was almost completed. He felt like all Jesus had to do was accept the throne. (laughs) And they can elevate Him as as a great ruler and take on Rome. He had seen Jesus' miracles. He knew the power was there. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus gives Himself up. And Peter denies Him three times. And the lion was on the road. The lion came out of nowhere. Peter says, man, be sober. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. 
He's looking for someone to devour. Contrary to the popular old song, in the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. Uh uh. The lion does not sleep. Satan does not go on vacation. Satan doesn't say, oh hey, it's springtime. Think I'm going to kick back and barbecue with my buds. (laughs) I'll let him go for a while because the weather's just too nice to be evil. (laughs) We say, you know, you've been working hard. You've been serving well. You've been involved in church ministry. Let your hair down a bit. Yeah, tell that one to Samson. That worked out real well for him. We say, look, stay home. Let someone else fight the battle. Let someone else do children's ministry. Let someone else be involved in parking. Let someone else take the meal to someone's house. Let someone else be involved in prayer ministry. You know, let them fight the battle for a while. I fought hard and long. Stay home. Let others go off to war. Yeah, tell that one to David. How did it work out for him, 2 Samuel 11, when he stayed home and sent the others off to fight the battle? He met a woman named Bathsheba and it ruined his life. Take a break. Have a meal. Tell that to the man of God. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the end of death. Satan doesn't go on vacation and gain obedience. And listen to me on this. It's so important. Obedience is not religious exercise. Obedience is strength training. The more obedient I am to the Father, the stronger I am in my faith, and the less likely the lion is going to come out of nowhere and strike me. Why was it that Daniel could stand in the lion's den and the lion's mouths were shut? Because he was obedient. He was faithful to the Lord. He knew the word. He trusted his father. And he stuck when no one else was sticking. Obedience is not religious exercise. It's strength training. Peter goes on and he says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. By the way, as we sit here comfy in this barn this morning, there are brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who are being murdered because they're trying to meet in places on a Sunday. Or they're trying to open the Bible together. Martyrdom is an ongoing event in this world all around us. And Peter says, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you Obedience is strength training. Now you might say that's all well and good. And we should talk about obedience. That's a good church thing to talk about. But this story still seems a bit unfair. The young man was obedient. One little slip up. One slight little thing. And like the old prophet says, God punished him by sending the lion. No, he didn't. Remember, that's the old prophet speaking. It is not the word of God speaking. You know why God put this this, uh, command on the man of God? Why would he say, don't eat water there, don't drink there, don't stay there, and don't go back that way? Because God knew the lion was on the road. He didn't tell the the young man of God that. He didn't tell him, look, there's there's a lion that's going to chew you up, so be careful. He just said, don't go that way. All the young man of God had to do was obey. And he would not have run into the lion. God knows the lion is on the road. Our Father, our Father whose heart is toward us, knows where the lion is. He knows your weaknesses. He knows my weaknesses. He knows our failings. He knows those sin points in our lives. You know the ones. We don't have to illuminate them today. Each one of us has certain areas where Satan can push a button and off we go into sin. You know what they are. 
And God knows what they are. And He says, I'll tell you what, instead of going that way, why don't you follow me this way? Don't go the way you came from. Because where you came from was a mess. Go where I lead you. Listen to my voice. Trust me. Obey me. Well, I don't think I want to obey you, Dad. Just do as I say. I'm not going to explain everything to you right now. Trust me. And the Lord has shown Himself again and again to be faithful. Well, 1 Kings 13 ends up, After this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but again he made priests of the high places from among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. This event became sin in the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from off the face of the earth. So Jeroboam will get his. Heard the statement before, the wheels of justice... They may move slowly, but they grind thoroughly. So Jeroboam's going to get his. The man of God, it wasn't, I, I really believe this thing, it wasn't about God punishing him for disobedience. It was about God warning him ahead of time, but he didn't listen. And so the lion struck. The rebellious heart wants to disobey while the lion is licking his chops. The Bible tells us in John 3.16, you're familiar with it, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world would be saved through Him. That's the idea. That's the point. John 3.18 says, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, because God is so harsh and judgmental? No, because He provides a way for us. And the way is Jesus. If you will obey Me and go the way I tell you to go, guess what? You're not going to be running into the lion so much. And when you do run into the lion because you have been obeying Me, you will be strong enough to stand. And you will know which way is the escape route. If you will just obey me. Later in that same chapter, John chapter 3, John the Baptist, verse 35, said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, listen to that, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. The lion is waiting on the highway. But so is the Savior. Would you give your life and your trust and your obedience to Him? I guarantee you, it's not going to be a religious drag like Jeroboam's religion. It'll be truth. It'll be joyful. It will be protected. And it will be a wonderful relationship with God. Let's pray together. Father, we're seeing Your Word so many truths and so many principles and powerful things and Father we we pray that you would make us in some ways make us like the man of God prayerful and protected and, and powerful Father people of purpose and integrity who do what you call us to do but Father I pray that you would strengthen us in truth and by your word Lord so that we will know how to stand and we will not go the way where the lion is waiting I pray, Father, you will forgive us of our sins and teach us what it means to truly be obedient children who know the security and the safety and the protection of your arms around us. Again, as we pray this morning with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, I 
I want to say if there's anyone here who has never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, you've never given your heart to Jesus, I want to invite you to do so right now. And I want you to simply pray with me. Pray after me in your heart to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. But I want you to be my Lord and teach me to obey. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. As the King of my life. I believe you died for me in the very place that I deserve to die. I believe you rose again proving and showing me that there is a resurrection. And I pray that my heart would be ready to meet you at that time. Lord, lead me from this day forward that I might not go back the way I came, but I will go home a different way. In Jesus we pray. Amen.